That was magnificent. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I think we're going to have church today. I am very grateful to be here. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. If it's okay with you, we're going to talk about Jesus today. Amen. I don't have any chicken soup for the soul to bring you this morning. I got something much better. Ken, I am grateful for the men who stopped you in Walmart and shared the gospel with you, my brother. And your wife and your children and everybody in this community that has been impacted for your life. Matthew says, then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, <clears throat> preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Everything they were dealing with, he's meeting them right where they are. But when he saw the multitudes, there were so many people he sees their brokenness. He sees their sin. He sees their emptiness. He sees their dissatisfaction with life. The disappointment that life brings continually. He was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary, beat up, scattered. Like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest field. I want us to pray that this morning. Ephesians 4 says, it is the job of a pastor or a teacher of a church not to go out and reach the community for Christ, but to equip the saints to go out and reach the community for Christ. He's the coach He's training, equipping the team to get out on the field. It's not his job to burn himself out doing all the work. It's his job, Ephesians says, to equip the saints. It's his job to unify the body. It's his job to help move you from immaturity spiritually to maturity spiritually. We've had the honor and privilege of having had a pastor for 31 years, weekly standing up, and equipping us. Now the baton has been passed to you and to me. It's our job to go out and do the work of ministry. It's not our job to sit around and wait for the next guy to come in and get on the field and we cheer him on and give and support him. It's our job to go do the work of ministry. A pastor of, it, of any church, he can't go where the people can go. He can't talk to everybody the people are going to talk to. And like Jesus equipping his disciples and sending them out, we have been called by our Lord to go make disciples. Are you making disciples? Or are you waiting for somebody else to do it? 
Are you evangelizing the people in your circumference of influence, or are you waiting for someone else to do it? You and I have been equipped. We've been hearing the Word of God week after week after week for years, and the Lord wants us to get engaged in ministry. While the world hides and entertains themselves to death, the church should move forward. And now is the time for us to be found faithful like never before. We have the privilege of taking the best news in the world, the gospel, to the people that we interact with. It is an honor and a privilege to be entrusted with the gospel. We don't write the mail, we just deliver the mail. Jesus does the saving, we don't have to do any saving. Jesus did the dying, we don't have to die on the cross. He rose again from the grave. You don't have to raise anybody from the grave. The Holy Spirit does the work. We just deliver the mail. It is a privilege always to do that. Let's pray this morning that the Lord would equip us to carry out the work of ministry. Father, in agreement with Jesus and the word of God, we pray that you, the Lord of the harvest, would send out laborers from this church into your harvest field into Albany and Lee County and Sasser and Dawson and all the communities around us and to the nations, Lord. We pray that you would raise up from this body ministers of the gospel, godly businessmen and businesswomen, godly teachers, government leaders. Would you raise up from this place effective, fruitful kingdom leaders that would influence this community. And as Jesus said, they would let their light so shine that the world would see the good works that you are doing through them and that you, our Father, would be glorified. Lord, would you reach our communities with the gospel? Would you let our hearts beat along with your heart as you have compassion for the lost all around us, Lord, the people that don't know you, Lord, Open our eyes to see with your eyes. Give us a heart for those you have a heart for, a love for them, Lord. And we pray, Father, that we would be found faithful as a church body to do the work of ministry you've called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest joys in life is to share the gospel with someone. Have you ever had the privilege or opportunity where you opened your mouth or you delivered a track or you shared uh, a book with someone and as a result of your effort, you saw God use you to lead someone to Christ. Has that ever happened in your life? It is one of the coolest, most awesome things in the world to see God transform someone's life and you got to deliver the good news to them. The Bible says the power of God unto salvation is embedded in the gospel. The good, simple news that Jesus came and died and rose again from the grave and that anyone, anywhere, at any time can turn from their sins and call upon Jesus and be saved and it transformed their lives forever. And it will change the trajectory of their family. It'll change the trajectory of their children. Everything shifts from death to life, from vanity to to purposefulness, from uh, sinfulness and addiction and hopelessness to the love and joy and peace and freedom that we have in Christ. It is truly incredible. So this morning, I want us to look at how Jesus shared the gospel. 
And I want us to learn from him, our master, the ultimate one who can witness to anybody anywhere at any time. And I want us to learn from him how we can share the gospel with the people that are in our circumference of influence. Our gospel, our good news is 10 million times better than the good news of the world. I don't know if you ever get the scam phone calls of, you know, you can get 15% more on your car insurance or there's a, there's a new, uh, your, your warranty on your car has just worn out is the one that I've gotten so many times. And so uh, you hear all of these things in the world. There's good news of you've just gotten enough Kohl's cash to buy a new pair of jeans, you know, whatever it is that the world gives you. It's always temporary. It doesn't last. That we we're so excited, we get the Christmas gift, we open it up, and just in a few days, we're tired of it. And everything you were hoping for as a teenager to get, you don't care about anymore because it doesn't mean anything to you now. The world's good news does not last. But the good news of the gospel is long-term and eternal. The world's good news deals with sometimes short-term relief of pain. But God's good news deals with deliverance from sin and hell for all eternity. That's really good news. The world's good news gives people short-term joy for a few minutes. But God's good news gives us lasting joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Scripture says. We have the good news that we don't have to live addicted, boring, empty, selfish lives, but that God loves us. And he can save us from the judgment that we deserve. That we can be forgiven of all of our sins. That needs to always be connected to the gospel. Is that people can be forgiven of all of their sins. And that Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us. Just John 3.16. If you have memorized or heard or or, uh, learned John 3.16, that one verse is the gospel in a nutshell. And you can use that verse in your mind when you're talking to people about there is a God and we deserve to perish, but he is a loving God and he didn't just love you from afar and think happy thoughts towards you, but he so loved you that he sent his only son, Jesus. And Jesus, the one only begotten son of God came and he lived and he died and he rose again from the grave and that whoever you are, you can believe in him. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pray towards Mecca five times a day. You don't have to crawl on your knees across broken glass. You don't have to knock on a thousand doors and give out watchtowers. You can just believe in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, demonstrating the kindness and grace of God. You can be saved and not perish and go to hell, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, in your mind, can guide you as you're talking to people, and you can share the gospel with someone else. And if you don't know what to say, just share your own story. Nobody can argue with your story. They can't debate your story because it's your story. And for you to be able to say, here's the way I was apart from Christ, and here's what he's done in my life. Here's my brokenness and my sin, and here is his sufficiency and his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, and it's truly incredible. So it says in 1 Peter 3.15, this is one of my brother's favorite verses. I love this verse. It says, set apart Christ, he's speaking to believers, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Put him in that first position. Let him be the, in a holy place in your heart. He's number one. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And when you do that, get ready. Because his Holy Spirit is going to start living out 
the fruit of the Spirit, and the life of Christ through you when you are surrendered to him. And then he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Not with pride, not with arrogance, not I know better than you and we're going to debate about this and I'm going to win the debate. It's with gentleness and respect that you're communicating with others a reason that you have hope in the midst of a pandemic, that you have hope in the midst of depression, that you have hope in the midst of economic troubles. We have that in Christ and in the gospel. So in John chapter 4, this is right after John chapter 3 when Jesus gives John 3.16 to Nicodemus, and he tells a very religious man who was a Pharisee who thought he was very holy. He starts off the conversation basically by saying, you must be born again, Nicodemus, or you're not going to go to heaven. And Nicodemus was probably shocked by that news. In fact, he just wanted to come and talk to Jesus, saying, I've heard about these miracles. God must be a part of this. Jesus shifts the conversation to the gospel, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again, by the way. Let's quit talking about these other things. You need to be saved, Nicodemus. And then he gives him John 3.16, and he calls him to surrender his life to Christ. So when we get to John chapter 4, now Jesus could have gone three different paths in Galilee around Samaria. Samaria was the other side of the tracks. Samaria was the place where uh, they root for a different team, they vote for different candidates, they, uh, they have different kind of worship and denominations. They're a different race. They're a different color. They're everything different. And the Jews historically hated the Samaritans. And so Jesus with his disciples, instead of going around Samaria, Jesus walks right into Samaria. And in John chapter 4, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, He trained them, equipped them at this point to do that. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. You can go back in the Old Testament, Genesis, and read about Jacob's well. But he says Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Because he's not just God, but he's a man too. At this point, he's weary from his journey. So he's tired. He was sitting down by the well. So he's tired and he's thirsty. And it's about the sixth hour. It's noontime, so it's hot. Jesus is hot, tired, and thirsty. And he sends his disciples in to go buy some food. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. She's coming at noontime and not with the early time in the day with all the other women because she's got a bad reputation. It says she came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. Now I want you to imagine showing up at a restaurant and you're tired and you want a break and you get a big... uh, Coke, and you sit down at a table, and you look over, and there's somebody that's opposite from you in every way. You're a man, it's a woman, or you're a woman, it's a man. You're white, they're black, or you're black, or they're they're white, whatever it is. You're this, they're that. Everything about them is different. And what if that person said, hey, can I have a sip of your Slurpee? (laughs) 
I mean, you're a Christian, you know, you're, you're like, I, I'll get you a Slurpee, I guess, but you can't have some of my Slurpee, you know, what's going on here? Jesus says to her, she's got a bucket, he says, would you give me something to drink? Look at how she responds. For his disciples had gone in to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, she said, say what? <laughs> she said, how is it that you being a Jew are asking me for a drink? Since I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a Jewish rabbi and I'm a Samaritan woman. For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. I went back and checked. Basically, in 722 B.C., when the ten northern tribes went into captivity in Assyria, the Jews started intermarrying with the Gentiles. And when they came back, they had to find out where their lineage is from. And those that couldn't prove their lineage was Jewish and they were mixed breeds became the Samaritans. They were kind of kicked out. So the Samaritans ended up living in, forming Samaria. They started their own temple, their own religious services, their own church and denomination, their own way on their own mountain, Mount Gerizim. And this just formed more animosity and competition between them. The Pharisees hated the Samaritans so much that they prayed that they would not be raised in the resurrection. The, the, the uh, enemies of Jesus wanted to insult him in John chapter 8, and so they called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. It's like, let me think of the worst name I can call you. You're a Samaritan. That's how bad. So she's looking at him saying, you're talking to me? And you want a sip of my Slurpee? <laughs> Look at how Jesus responded. And let me just stop right here for a second. This is the first note in here. When Jesus is witnessing, he did not exclude anyone. He did not exclude anyone. A church should represent its community. If a, church, if a community is 30% Latino and 50% white and every, you know, then the church ought to start reflecting the community. That will shock some churches in America that do not look like their community at all. One thing I love about this church is we look more like heaven than any other church I've been a part of. Praise the Lord for that. Because I know I'm not a Jew, so I'm grateful Jesus is willing to reach out beyond the Jews. And in this situation, Jesus is not excluding anyone. And that's the first note on us. Who in your life has God placed in your path that he wants you to share the gospel with? Because it is good news for them. And Jesus died for them and loves them. So he says, give me a drink. And, she said, and then uh, she says, who are you? And then I love verse 10. Jesus answered and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's asking you give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now, first, we don't earn our salvation. It is a free gift. Jesus starts off talking to a woman who we're going to find out she's been married five different times. She's living with another man she's not married to. She's been giving her body to try to earn love all of this time. And Jesus says, 
I'm not going to ask you for anything. I want to sip of this water right here, but I want you to know somebody has a gift for you that you don't have to pay for. And in fact, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for something. You would be asking me for living water. I love this because Jesus, secondly, was willing to be inconvenienced. He's hot, he's thirsty, he's tired, and Jesus is willing to have a conversation with this lady. There's going to be times when it will be an inconvenience for you to share the gospel with someone. There's going to be times when you're on the airplane and I've been there and you're tired and the person sitting next to you wants to talk. And you're going to be thinking, I want to put on my earphones and go to sleep or watch a movie. I don't want to talk to anybody. And it may be the divine appointment for, for all these years is sitting right next to you on an airplane. It may be that the coworker next to you wants to talk and go to lunch and you don't want to talk and go to lunch. It may be that your kids are inconveniencing something that you're doing at home and they are the divine appointment of the day. And in this situation, Jesus did not let his personal feelings or needs determine what he would do. He's willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. He also didn't wait for his disciples who he had trained to do it to get back with their happy meals. And there's an, it's easy for believers sometimes to say, I will let Ken Bevel share the gospel. I'm going to take this person up for the minister at the church to be able to share the gospel. Jesus didn't wait for somebody else to do it. This may be the last opportunity for them to hear the gospel. And in this situation, he's willing to be inconvenienced. But he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was talking to you, you'd ask him for living water. Thirdly, he attracted her with kindness and curiosity. He attracted her with kindness and curiosity. If you read through this whole passage, Jesus was gracious to this lady in every sentence. And she was antagonistic with everything he said. She resisted him the entire time. All the way up to the end, she argued with him. She was skeptical. She had been hurt by enough men. And when people have been hurt, they become real skeptical about trusting anybody else. And in this situation, she had been hurt so many times and rejected so many times. All the walls are up. And some of the people that need the gospel around you, when you start talking to them, they're going to start arguing and doubting and resisting you. And Jesus continued to respond with kindness and curiosity. He says, and the way curiosity works is it's a mental thirst for more knowledge. And it happens because you're giving them a little bit of knowledge. Notice what he does. He says, if you knew the gift of God. Well, what is that? <laughs> and you knew who was talking to you. Well, who are you? Then you would ask him for living water. And these three things are really what we're going to be presenting to people because if people really knew what Jesus could do for them and that salvation was free and it doesn't have to be earned and it's a gift of grace, they would want it. And if they really knew how good Jesus is, because if someone rejects Christ, it's because they don't really know who they're rejecting. They have never uh, encountered the true living Christ in that situation. But if you knew the, the gift of God and you knew who was speaking to you, you would be asking him. For eternal life and living water. So he used curiosity. I remember the faith training program that trains in evangelism. They say, don't lay out all the gospel early on. 
listen to the people, talk to them, find out where they are. And when they ask you your story, you say this, say, I had a life-changing experience. And just leave it right there for a minute. And they're going to be like, well, what is it? And, and then I like to say, do you really want to know? <laughs> yeah, are you sure? <laughs> Jesus is hooking her with these three questions of curiosity, but he's kind to her every step of the way. He was salting her with his words. Look at this verse in Colossians 4 that will be up on the screen. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That you're being kind and you're salting your conversations with enough information to make them curious to want to know about your Lord. I've got a friend named Ed. He just told me in Columbus, Georgia, they've been doing homeless ministry and he said, we went out to this bridge and we're standing there. And this, before we even got into the little Bible study, this lady stands up. She says, I'm ready to be saved. Who do I need to talk to? <laughs> I mean, they hadn't even, it's like, open your Bibles. I'm ready to be saved. Who do I need to talk to? He said, they had been praying for her and had been taking food for her and the other people in the community. And God was working on her heart. But it was so salty because of their kindness and their grace and their compassion towards them. Even before they're getting it out of their mouth, she's ready to hear the gospel. Uh, there was a family who just visited us recently at Sherwood. I met them out in the atrium, and they're friends of uh, uh, Mike and Sherry Peachy. And they had been missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And they said they had just gone into this uh, tribal community a few years ago and were sharing the gospel. They learned the language, and now they are translating the scriptures in this language. They said, this group of people, it, you have to fly into a place and then like ride in a canoe for eight hours to get to where this tribe is. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And they said that as they're sharing the gospel, that recently the tribe next door came to them and said, we want what these people are getting. They said, we're seeing that whatever you're doing, it's impacting their marriages and their families. We're seeing the joy in their eyes. We're seeing the peace in their hearts. We're seeing the whole community bloom because they're, whatever they've got, we want it. They said, will you send missionaries here? Will you send these people here to tell us about what they have? That's the way our lives should be, salt. Everywhere we're going, people get salty to want to hear the gospel because of what's happening. I don't know if you remember when we were filming Courageous here, T.C. Stallings, who played the main uh, bad guy gang leader, in between the takes of the gang beat-in scene, he would share his testimony with all of those young men that, were, that showed up that day to be in the scene. So in between, while we're waiting for them to fix the lights and camera, he would share his testimony. At the end of filming that scene, the sound man gave his life to Christ because he's standing there with the microphone and his earphones on hearing the testimony in between every take. We have no idea who's listening when we're talking. And we need to realize we're being recorded. <laughs> They're paying attention. I think about sometimes the, the sports teams on the field, and I'm thinking, sometimes we're yelling and screaming about the call, and I'm like, Lord, does that referee know Christ? Because these, all these Christians over here are giving him what for, because obviously he's blind as a bat that he didn't see what I saw when I was in a different position on the field. 
And I'm like, if this man is on the, is tottering on the brink of either turning away from God or giving his life to Christ, how is this game and these Christians and their graciousness or saltiness going to affect his decision for Christ? So when you're on the court, think about that. When you're at work, think about that. If the people around me are on the brink of either giving their lives to Christ or not, how will my speech, my words, are you telling dirty jokes or are you talking about answered prayer? Are you talking about how can I serve you? How can I help you? How I appreciate getting to work with you. What can I do for you rather than trying to, to, to slide one in or gossip about somebody else? Because our speech, he says, always should be seasoned with salt. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. And Jesus in this situation, he is salting in his speech with his kindness and he's hooking her in. And her response is she wants to know more about him. If you look at what she says, he says, you'd ask me for living water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's given him three reasons why this is not true. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well? You've got better water than him? And drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. She said, I trust Jacob more than I trust you. I don't know who you are. She resists him. And that's the next thing. He was very patient with resistance. He was very patient with resistance. So often, Christians are afraid to share their faith because they think at any point, what if they resist me? What if they doubt what I say? What if they criticize me? What if they think I look stupid? What if, I th what if they uh, don't understand the theology of what I'm trying to communicate? I, and and the, the Word of God is saying, well, not only is that going to happen, but don't be afraid of that. Five different times, if you read through this passage, she resisted Jesus. She doubted him. And in this situation, she says, here's all these reasons why this is not true. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Speaking of you and me. You don't have to turn there, but look up on the screen. It says, the Lord's servant, that's you, must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged. They're falsely accusing you. They're disagreeing with you. They're saying it doesn't make sense. You're being with, you're with gentleness correcting those who are in, in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So he says in this passage, be gentle, be patient, don't be argumentative, be kind, be attentive, and let God do his work as you're, share, as you're delivering the mail, as you're talking about what God's doing in your life. And it's okay for you to say this. We've had to do this in so many interviews. <laughs> when they say something to you, it's okay for you to say, I don't have an answer for you there, but I do know this. I don't have an answer for you there, but I do know this. Because they're going to change the subject. They're going to ask you questions that you may not know, or they may start criticizing your church or your denomination or their cousin's friend's uncle who went to your church, you know, or whoever it is. And when those kind of things happen, you need to be ready to be kind and gentle in those situations. Jesus responds 
with grace and with kindness towards her. And it worked. <laughs> Look at verse 15. <clears throat> the woman says, okay, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He says to her, I love this, go call your husband and come here. So she's hooked. She's like, all right, I'm in. Where do I sign? He says, go call your husband. And the woman says, uh, <clears throat> I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. <laughs> the woman says to her, this makes me laugh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> Do you, are you a psychic? What just happened? How did you know this about me? Here's the point. He relied upon the Holy Spirit. He relied upon the Holy Spirit. In this situation, I feel like, Jesus, you cheated now. I can't, I, I can't, you did something weird. How are we going to be able to do this, Jesus? In this situation, you pulled out your I'm the son of God card. I know things about people that nobody else knows. No, the truth is he relied upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon him when he was being baptized, and Jesus said the entire time the Holy Spirit was the secret to the whole situation. So Jesus was trusting the Holy Spirit every step of the way. We tend to want to know every step of the journey. What if you're a college student going off to college says, all right, mom and dad, I'm going to drive to college. When I get in the car and I drive, and, uh, and, and when I need to turn right, I'll turn right. When I need to turn left, but what if I don't know what to do? And you're going to say, well, plug in the address and GPS will tell you. Well, what if I get there and I don't know what to do? Well, GPS, when you get there, GPS will tell you. When it says turn right, turn right. And you'll end up at, the de you'll end up at college. But I, I want to understand every turn before I go. That's not how it works. Okay, Get in the car, start driving. It's going to lead you every step of the way. We sometimes are like, I want to see how this plays out when I'm talking to this person about the Lord. And when I say this, what if they say this? And then how am I going to respond to that? And what if I say this? Sometimes you're just not going to know. You're just not going to know. But you know what? You have a spiritual GPS, the Holy Spirit, inside of you. Amen. And Jesus said he will empower you to be a witness. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say. He's going to help you in that moment. You're going to, well, I'll probably forget scriptures. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will remind you of scriptures you learned a long time ago. He will bring things to mind. There are so many times when, when I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, Lord, please help. Inside, you know, I'm looking at them like this and inside I'm like, Jesus, please help me, fill me, guide me. And in that moment, bam, the next thing I need to say comes to my mouth. But this gift of the Holy Spirit, God does give believers discernment at different times. I have a friend named Trent. He was at Putt-Putt talking to this guy, and the guy said, I used to be a youth pastor, but now I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in all that stuff anymore. And Trent's standing there talking to him, and Trent said, if you saw a miracle, would you believe in God? And the guy said, I don't, I don't know. He said, because you're hooked on methamphetamines and you're hiding it from your wife. And the guy opened his eyes, and he said, how did you know that? He said, because the Holy Spirit just told me while I was talking to you. I've got another friend named Scott, who was at Dunkin' Donuts on Dawson Road, ordering some donuts, and was talking to the girl behind the register. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, you don't want to be here, do you? And she said, nope. He said, you go to Albany State, don't you? And she said, yes. And he said, 
and you have walked away from the Lord and now you're living with your boyfriend, aren't you? And she said, how did you know that? He said, because the Lord just told me when I was talking to you. He said, <clears throat> he wisely, he said, the Lord sent me to tell you he wants a relationship with you again. It's time to come back home. Believers need to realize that the Holy Spirit is real. And he's the secret to the Christian life. I was on an airplane talking to this lady. She was very professional, expensive clothes. Uh, she, uh, she was uh, jaded and just real calloused, you know. And I'm just asking her a little bit about her life. And in the middle of the conversation, I'm realizing this lady is hard. She's been burned. She talked about being divorced. And in the middle of the conversation, she starts talking about her daughter and some needs. And I said, I know that's tough. And then, then uh, she said, what do you do? <laughs> I said, well, you know, we, we make actually movies that uh, talk about God. We, you know, we, we work on books, you know. And uh, she said, okay. She goes, in fact, and she reaches in her pocket and she pulls out this coin. She said, I've got this coworker that says he's praying for me. And she said, he gave me this coin. It says the armor of God on it, Ephesians 6. And I looked at that, and I reached in, and I pulled out the book defined that we had just written, and I, I said, look at the first page. And it said, the most, one of the most powerful books in the world that was written is the book of Ephesians. And she looked down at it, and she starts bawling. And she says, and then I realized, this is total divine appointment. I said, do you think it's by accident I'm sitting next to you on this airplane? And she started talking about her daughter and all these issues that she's dealing with. She starts crying. I said, can I just pray for you? And the Lord was able to unfold the gospel because I didn't plan on sitting next to her. I didn't know who she was. But the GPS sometimes says, turn right. And you're like, okay, you know. <laughs> if you have given your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And if you will forgive everyone who has hurt you and stop grieving the Holy Spirit and repent of your sins, which we all sin, but if we repent and we're right with him, say, Holy Spirit, fill me and lead me, and then fasten your seatbelt. Buckle up, because he'll start prompting you and guiding you. And, and this is what Jesus is doing in this situation. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us witnesses when we cannot do it on our own. The Apostle Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come as a demonstration of my persuasiveness, but of the power of God, the Spirit's power in my life. Then Jesus revealed the universal need for forgiveness because he exposed her sinfulness. Sometimes people want to argue about whether or not what they're doing is sin or not. And we don't really have to get in a big debate about one specific sin because we're all broken in every way. So we can, we can talk about this one thing that you may say is or is not sin, but let's just all admit we're sinners and we need forgiveness. No sin gets into heaven, but a holy God has provided a way through Jesus that we could be saved. And, and Jesus in this situation is pointing out to her her desperate need for forgiveness because she's thirsty, she's disappointed in life, she's been rejected again and again, but she also needs to be forgiven. And Jesus points out her sinfulness. And then she responds, I have no husband. And then she says, you're a prophet. But then she responds in verse 20. Well, hold on a second. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people 
over there, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she says, you know, I'm a Methodist and you're a Baptist. She says, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic and you're, she starts shifting the gears and she's using a second, a secondary issue to hijack the conversation. The next thing is, Jesus was not sidetracked by secondary issues. His response was, he says, the hour is coming, believe me, when not this mountain or that mountain is the issue. <laughs> he says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvations of the Jews. In verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must be spirit and in truth. I remember walking with this lady one time, and I'm trying to share the gospel with her, and she says, well, I'm Catholic. You know, we, and so I remember saying, when we stand, this is what I said to her, I said, when we stand before God, he's not going to ask, are you Catholic or Methodist or Baptist? The Bible says, he who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son does not have life. That's the issue, is Jesus. People will start saying, well, you know, I, I, again, I, I was burned one time by a pastor when I was a kid. I saw this one pastor, and he had an affair with somebody, and, you know, my, totally ruined my mom's life and whatever. They're going to start talking about secondary issues, getting off of the perfection of Jesus. The Bible's very clear. We are broken people in a broken world. But God is not broken, and he's perfect. And we need to get our eyes off of the brokenness of people because we're all broken, Every church is full of hypocrites, and so is every Walmart and McDonald's. Because every organization has people in it, and people are broken. So when people say, well, there's hypocrites at that church, well, that, that's why they need to be at that church. Because <laughs> they need Jesus just like we do and just like you do, because he is perfect, and he's not going to let you down. Then lastly, he revealed that Christ alone could meet her needs, because she responds and she says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will declare all things. She puts him off. She's like, well, there's a Messiah who's coming, and when he comes, he'll handle this. And he says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one that gives living water. I'm the one that forgives sin. I'm the one that's the Messiah. I am greater than Jacob. Jesus is the one. He revealed that Christ alone could meet her needs. And when we're sharing our faith with people, we're not presenting ourselves. Michael Katz's favorite verse, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants, for Christ's sake. He revealed that Christ could meet her needs. I am. What are you? I am whatever you need. So when Jesus is talking to those looking for bread. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. They're hungry for bread. He presents himself as the bread of life. And the woman at the well here, she's there for water. He presents himself as, I can give you water, you'll never thirst again. When the disciples in John 14 are talking about how do we, what's the way to heaven, Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. He takes what they're looking for, what they're thirsting for, what they're hungry for, and we, he presents himself because salvation is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. When he's at a funeral, they say, we know one day Lazarus will rise. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection 
and the life. To the fishermen wanting to fish, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus comes back to, he is the solution. He is the gospel and he is the answer. And when you and I are sharing with people, we just got to point them to Jesus. Let him do the work. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he can get a hold of their hearts. George Barna revealed, he researched, and he said there's of nine different methods of evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, sharing a track, inviting someone to an outreach event, even preaching on the street corner. He said in this generation, one, one that they're seeing very prolific that's working well is when a, a believer just offers to pray with a non-believer when they have any kind of need or they just need encouragement. And just that one, hey, I know you're dealing with a lot right now. Or, hey, I know that you just told me about what's going on with your family. Or, I know this is tough. Would it be okay if I just prayed for you right now? And just that one act of service, of showing kindness to them, sparks open the door for a spiritual conversation to follow. And sometimes it's you're praying the gospel while you're praying. You're praying John 3.16 while you're praying for their family member or whatever. And the Lord can use you in those moments. So be open to God using you to communicate to those that are around you. When the disciples get back, they're astonished that Jesus is talking to this lady. And in verse 35, look down what he says and what he's saying to Sherwood Baptist Church this morning. Do not say there are yet four months until a new pastor comes. Or there are six months until the pandemic is over. Or there's... 60 days until we don't have to wear masks again. Or September when our stimulus check runs out. Or whatever it is, Jesus says, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Jesus says, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. They're ripe right now. There's people ready right now to embrace the gospel if you will share it with them. He said, already. He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. There's people out there already that are in the fields and they're reaping harvest and they're winning people to Christ and God's using them right now. It's going on all around you. You need to realize it. And he says, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Whether we're sowing, or whether we're watering, or whether we're reaping, we need to be found faithful. Amen. And if we will do that, and humble ourselves, and salt our speech, and be prayed up and be led by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see those baptismal waters up there stirred more and more and more and more because of what God does through these people that he has equipped for the last 31 years. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. This morning, some of you in this room are here, and you may not even know why you're here. <laughs> you're like, I just wandered in today, or a friend brought me today, or I feel uncomfortable in this place, or I'm not a Baptist, and that's okay with us, because most of us aren't either. You know? <laughs> We're kind of Baptocostal at Sherwood, okay? Our loyalty is to God and the Word, okay, and to Jesus. But those denominational uh, logos and egos, we can leave at the door and we can come in as sinners saved by grace and the son of, by the Son of God. 
But I want you to know we have really, really good news for you this morning. Better than 15% on your car insurance, better than you won the lottery, and that is that Jesus has a gift for you, and it's called eternal life that he paid for by dying on the cross and rising again from the grave. And there's nothing better that I could give you than to share with you that good news. And this morning, right where you are, in the seat where you're sitting, if you realize I'm a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, you can call upon Jesus right where you are and be saved. It's not this church that can save you. It's Jesus who saves you. He's been doing it for thousands of years and millions of people around the world. Their lives have been transformed when they quit trying to earn their way into heaven and they let God gift them something out of his loving kindness at the expense of his son that they can have. And you can have that this morning. And we invite you, whether you want to stay in your seat, there'll be ministers down front, or you want to walk down front during this invitation time after we pray, we want to invite you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as a satisfied customer. I can say it was the best decision I have ever made in my life, was giving my life to Christ. There are many of you that are believers in this room, though. And this morning, the Lord wants you to be equipped with the gospel. And he wants you to realize you already have everything you need to share the good news of the gospel with other people. And if you believe in Jesus, he wants you to say, Lord, take my hands, my feet, my lips, fill me and lead me by your spirit, and let me share and deliver the news, the good news with the people that are around me. And may God bless our efforts, and may more and more people get saved because we said yes to sharing this good news with others. Amen? Let's stand together and let's pray this morning. <clears throat> On the amen of this prayer, we're going to have an invitation time. We're going to be singing, and I want to invite you to obey the Lord, whatever he tells you to do. If you need to come forward and join this church, there are ministers down front ready to receive you. If you have questions you would like to talk to someone about first, then they would be ready to, to talk with you or pray with you as well. Or if you this morning want to recommit yourself and say, Lord, make me a soul winner. Make me someone who gets to share the good news of the gospel with other people that wherever I go and whatever I do, lead me into a ripe harvest. Give me the words to say and transform people's lives as I share the gospel with them. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together in this place and lift up the name of Jesus and edify and encourage one another and honor you and sing and fellowship. And Lord, that you are equipping us to do the work of ministry. And Lord, I pray that we would take all the seeds that have been planted, all the messages from Michael Catt, proclaiming your word delivered to our hearts over these years. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a soul-winning church, that you would make us a disciple-making church, that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do what we cannot do on our own. That you would give us the boldness and the words, the favor, and that you would lead us into divine appointments and that we would be living lives that well represent the gospel. And Lord, as a result, I pray that we would see so many people get saved because of what you do. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. We give you this morning, we pray you'd save the lost.
and build up your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing and you respond.